Hello, nice to be here today. I want to thank the Historical Society and also Humanities Montana, um, who's been supporting this research through a fellowship. Um, today I want to talk about something that happened 170 years ago this month. It's kind of interesting that the Founders Day tomorrow, five years later to the day, Father DeSmet got on a boat from Fort Lewis and never to return <laughs> Uh, except on, a, on an army mission in 1859. <coughs> so these this five years that he and Nicholas Point spent in the region, um, this is kind of the, end, the last trip. I want to talk about an interesting sideline that has become now the focus of my research. And before, earlier I'm, I'm obsessed with researching the Jesuit records and what I can tease out about the tribal communities from those records. But I was working on a book. I'm going to give a plug for the Historical Society since they get all the profits from this book called People Before the Park. So the Blackfeet Committee and I took a slideshow to the high school in Browning to show them what we were working on for the seasonal round of the Blackfeet. And I used this image, a Nicholas Point painting. So Nicholas Point came with Desmet in 41 and was the official um, record keeper for the Jesuits, especially visually, because he was a self-taught artist. Point uh, Desmet gave him this job. So anyway, I used this picture of the holy woman leading the horse. So the holy woman is the person who has, there, there may be multiple holy women in a group, but she has sponsored uh, an Ocon, a medicine lodge. She sat holy. And they still do this today. So anyway, kid in the back row, I thought he was sleeping. He seemed really bored, but he sees this picture and he goes, that's not right. Like, well, what do you mean it's not right? And he said, well, look at her. She kind of looks more like a priest than the holy woman. Her, her clothing isn't right. Her hair is ridiculous. Um, you know, that, she just, that's not the holy woman. And then a girl said, look at that horse. It looks like a European thoroughbred, not our short-legged ponies. And then another kid said, and besides that, I don't think we went for white horses. You know, we liked dark horses or, or paints. And... Uh, so anyway, it really just changed my life at that moment. <laughs> Prior to that, I had really taken, uh, whoops, I just went the wrong way. How do I get it back there? Um, I, I had, these paintings are from this book. Do you, how many of you are familiar with Wilderness Kingdom? Not too many. It's um, <laughs> an amazing uh, collection, and 60 of the paintings in the book are with the Blackfeet. I think most people think of the, of the Rocky Mountain missions as being here with the mountain tribes. And, and uh, so this is kind of an unusual story. Eight months that Nicholas Point spent among Blackfeet hunting camps. And um, so from these paintings, I had just taken them at face value. I really thought like um, John Ewers, who wrote the introduction to that book, these are like accurate portrayals. It's like a graphic pictorial history of life among these tribes in the 1840s. Um, well, according to these kids, maybe we need to take a second look. And so it's really made me think about perspective and perception. And what we see is so colored by our culture, our education, our family, and, uh, it, and our, so our history is much more complicated than most of us have proceeded to think. You know, often it's really from a white male perspective, right? So to try and um, engage a wider view, um, 
I've really delved into this one story because it gives us an opportunity to examine the same very concise history, eight months, through multiple perspectives. So um, this book that came out after, um, significantly later, 67 was Wilderness Kingdom, this is 89, some letters showed up that Point had sent. They got stuck in Paris for quite a long time, and they finally emerged in San Francisco. And this uh, Jesuit, Cornelius Buckley, publishes these letters, and many of them are about this particular journey among, among the Blackfeet. So if you, if you try to get through Wilderness Kingdom, you can't figure out what pictures go with what text. It's very complicated. And so this particular book, at least for the Blackfeet story, makes these things makes it clear where he is, what he's describing, which, which painting goes with the content. So the, this is an interesting story because the first six weeks of it, Dismet is with them. So we have Dismet's writings, we have Point's writings, and we have oral tradition from the Blackfeet. So it's uh, from the very beginning, we have so many questions, more questions than answers. I was talking with some of the staff from the Historical Society about um, we should actually start discussing together all these stories that don't add up instead of waiting and only publishing the ones we think we control, right, or we know the answers. Because in this case, I know less than, um, you know, than these possibilities. I don't know what the answers are. So the, the timing of this, tri of this trip um, points as they left the evening of August 15th and Dismet says they left the morning of the 16th. So it's a little complicated to try and track the story on the ground because then Point says they camped the first night, at, or Dismet says they camped at the mouth of the Blackfoot um, and went so many miles, but it, it doesn't add up because the two of them don't start at the same time. They are on the, they're two weeks behind the main camp. The Flathead camp has gone off for the, for the hunt and these, Eight people are going to try and quickly catch up with them. Um, so you know, I say they arrive at the Three Forks around the 23rd, but we don't know for sure. I mean, this one is particularly challenging because they're traveling under the the cover of night. They're you know it's a small group, so they're worried about being attacked. So they don't really have time to be taking the kind of meticulous notes that you might if you were, you know, having a, a relaxed time in camp every evening. So a lot of this is written later and, they, and the details are unclear. I've underlined the periods that they are actually with Blackfeet. They, they encounter, they're actually traveling with some Blackfeet from the Small Robes Band who are uh, married into the Salish. So they know them well, these couple of men. But they meet a large body of Pagan, Pekani, um, on their travels um, starting around the 14th of September. And then at Fort Lewis, uh, Desmet leaves on September 28th, I think he spends just a couple of days. And then um, uh, Point is there all winter. So uh, travel details, I love this. Um, camp the first night at the, at the Blackfoot. He calls it the Cart River, Desmet, because they brought their carts up that river in 1841. Um, cross the mountains in the vicinity of the Arrowstone. So the Arrowstone, I know, Ted Antonoli knows the answer to this, but there's an eyebrow chert source. It's called eyebrow chert in the Hall area, kind of between New Chicago and Hall in the, in the Flint Creek Valley. And so that name Arrowstone came from that because that was a place traditionally the Salish gathered stone to make arrow points. 
So somewhere, though, in the vicinity of the Arrowstone over an easy path um, and descended a tributary of the Jefferson. Okay, there are a couple of options there. I won't get into that today because that's kind of uh, off track. Um, from the Three Forks, Desmet makes it sound very simple, went easterly, probably over what is close to where Bozeman Pass is today, and over into the headwaters of the Yellowstone, a distance about 40 miles from one from the Missouri to the Yellowstone. Um, Points version, we don't have anything except incredible description of the berries in Hellgate Canyon. So he, that's the only detail. He's not geographically oriented the way Point, uh, the way Desmet is. But somewhere near the, after the Three Forks, he says they took a shortcut, which turned out a poor choice. They end up wandering around, and, and their animals are almost dead of lack of water, and they don't know what to do. They send some scouts ahead to try and figure out where there's water or people. And um, they're, you know, they're staggering around, but then they finally stumble upon a gorge, he says, or a wide crevice in the middle of the prairie, quite deep and honeycombed with Indian defenses and fortifications. I'd love to find this place, but it's because he has no landmarks. It's really, uh, and I've been on this wild goose chase, and it's quite fun, and I don't know if I'll ever find the answer, but I'm enjoying the process. Uh, then eight hours of hard riding from wherever that is. Um, then he says, before us lay the square buttes, so famous in the history of the voyageurs, really meaning Lewis and Clark. Okay, what? He, they're on their way to the Muscle Shell or the Yellowstone and he's in view of the square buttes. So this is why I've been on a wild goose chase. I finally think that was in the later part of the story. But he, he because he wrote it really 14 years later, mixed up the order of his travels. I'm, I'm thinking that Desmet is much more on the ground kind of guy, he knows where they went. Anyway, that was kind of a fun journey to figure out. And the confirmation, I think, of this is that this single map of Desmet's um, there's lots of maps in the, at the Midwest Jesuit archives, and one of his draft maps shows this. This would be the Gallatin, and he just shows this crossing, you know, from the Missouri system to the Yellowstone, and then traveling the South Side, which they talk about in the journals, and then or in these writings, and then um, this trail. This is Rose Creek, and I think it's the Stillwater, based on the rivers he shows on this map, the scale of river, and then this would be a round reed point going north when they um, go up through the gap, um, Judith Gap, and then really skirt. Whoops. Um, I'm sorry. Um, they skirt, instead of going up to where Lewistown would be, I think they go way up high in those headwaters and avoid the, the scary part of um, Arrow Creek, and then go to Fort Lewis, which is Fort Benton, really, the first year, but it was on the south side of the river, so they moved it, unpacked it, and moved it north and downriver slightly in uh, the following year. So that's really the hardest evidence for where this story took place. But you can see you've got two written stories that don't really add up, and here's the possibility, although nowhere does he say, this shows our trip, right? I'm surmising and speculating. Um, so who went with them? I said there were eight people. Um, Okay, in the Buckley version of what Point has to say, he's mis, I don't know if he's misunderstood or how that came up, but where it says four half-breeds of the Crow Nation, he's really with Métis, who would, would con, have been considered Cree um, mixed bloods. And then um, 
you know, from the Red River, that was not, that would not be Crow. So here's just, again, if you take things at face value, you're in trouble. Um, and then he says that Gervais and Charles served as interpreters, but Desmet says Gabriel was his interpreter. And that's, uh, I think Ken had mentioned Gabriel Prunholm, and that's uh, who, was, who was serving. So they had people who were married in, knew this country back and forth, had been on hunts several times a year into the mussel shell. They, they know where they're going. And, and, they're, and they speak French like these Jesuits do. So here is a self-portrait of Point because there are no photographs of the man. Um, and I'm assuming it's that this is Point and not pictures of Desmet, but they're both on the trip, but there's details there. I think Desmet still had dark hair at this time. Um, so eight, eight weeks actually in the hunting camps and then the rest of the time at around Fort Lewis. And um, you know what can we trust of what he recorded? So, what did he see and perceive, and what did he fail to see? So think about a European Jesuit, self-taught artist, has a lot, uh, you know, a lot of uh, context that he brings. So I want to ask. So see, this is a hunting scene out on the mussel shell area somewhere, I believe. Um, who is that riding the white horse? Doesn't it look like Santa Claus? It's just, I don't know what that's about. I do not know. Um, so then he has, um, he has two versions of the same man here. Um, you know, what's he perceiving? This is a, a pipe carrier uh, who, led the, who led the group forward when they met the Pagani, um Big Lakes Band. So the dress on the right, you see, is it doesn't really look like like the way a, a black but would be dressed. Looks a little bit more like the way it, of, a woman's uh, a European woman's dress hangs. So he has some limitations in what he can can, uh, or maybe that's the way he sees it, you know, as he's painting it because that's what he's used to. Um, very little on women and children. Very little. This is um, bailing uh, with the bailed. Uh, buffalo hides, that, so it's showing their, their, the important work that they do. But um, they must be about to trade because they're all, they are dressed up, and you wouldn't, this wouldn't be daily dress. He shows women um, after this battle with the crow that the, that the allied group won at a big celebration, and he certainly has some commentary on the scalp dance that the, that the women performed. And you can see his not subtle commentary on what he thought about it. So he has a lot of, look at, diabolical uh, elements. Uh, in terms of detail and what he sees um, and, and what we can perceive, here's the uh, Blackfeet with the travoy on the left and some Nez Perce uh, traveling with the poles um, on either side of the horse and not travoy. And he does a great job describing why, that in, in steep terrain, the travois are tippy, and so you, didn't, you just wouldn't haul your, your teepee poles that way. Um, but what I'm really interested in is how differently they carry themselves. In the, the Nez Perce seem tall and proud, and the, the black it looks less so. Well, what all can we read into that? It looks like maybe the, the Nez Perce, it's summertime and they're all dressed up. So because it's an occasion, they're all riding proudly. Um, the, the black feet perhaps uh, with that buffalo robe on, it's really cold. And so that, you know, and they're not maybe approaching anybody to be looking particularly dignified. 
But these are also so many questions rather than just thinking, oh, look at the Nespers dress more finely. And um, by this one, you know, stopping on their way to a hunt, they've sighted buffalo and he notes they stopped to pray. Um, and there, there's a picture of Desmet in, in a photograph in 1859, so 13 years later, and his hair's just going gray there. So I'm thinking Desmet probably had dark hair, and so I think this is another self-portrait of point. But anyway, that he, you know, what he's, what does he perceive, and what does he want his audience to understand? That they had this much influence over the people that they're stopping to pray before they go on a hunt. And then um, one thing I question is what he witnessed. So the, the Black Bay used to do a Sundance with some piercing, like the, the Sioux Sundance. The Pecunny on the Blackfeet Reservation stopped doing that after the buffalo were gone, so in the early 1880s. They continued it up north, the Canadian bands, until 1890 when the Mounties stopped it. Um, so it only happened in mid-July. So he wasn't there then. So it's, uh, and he, yeah, it, even though he gives a, a long description of it, he, I don't think he witnessed this. Um, here's a close-up of the of what he, what he perceives, and I'm thinking somebody's telling him about this, and so he's painting it as he thinks it happened. I don't know this for sure. This is a model in an Alberta museum, but based on uh, input, for tribal input from oral history about how it was done. So, you know, in this case, the, the thongs are attached up on the pole, not on the ground on the, but anyway, who knows? Did he perceive it or not? Did he witness it? He doesn't have the, the bone whistle, which is really important. So I'm thinking he missed that. And then eagle trapping? Who, who sees anything wrong with this picture? Look at his hands, they're not protected. Can you imagine? So you've got your bait up there, and first of all, I th I've only heard that one eagle would come in. It's not like a swarm of eagles come. But, why? if they did, your hand would be shredded. Uh, so, and, anyway, I love the perspective there he's trying to show. And this is a deer trap, um, trying to imagine what this underground trap would be. So look at the bulk of it, of, of a single doe. Can you imagine <laughs> the size of this trap with all those people and all those, you know, 12 or 14 deer. So again, I think he was told about it and then he went home and painted it and wasn't quite sure. Then what about his own skill level? He's self-taught. In this one, I, you know, great, the details, these things are miniatures. So the, they, they really are this size. These are in a, um, archive, a Jesuit archive in Montreal. They're tiny little things, so his detail is phenomenal. But um, look at the perspective of the proportions of the, of the camp, the teepee camp there. You know, that, he, he's challenged by getting that point across. And here's an, inside a lodge of a Kainai up north, um, tribal leader. Um, it's sort of like the women are either, I don't know, they almost look like dolls, right? The, the proportions are so off on the on the standing figures compared to the chief. Um, yeah, or, I, or he's trying to show children, maybe. But then, you know, the backrests are twice as big as, even as he is. And then it almost looks like a ghost woman over here, but this is the women's side of the lodge. So did he not understand that, uh, where men and women 
the yeah, men's side of the lodge there. Then what about his portraits? Can we trust them? I thought here's a couple where we can look at photographs um, to see the characteristics. You know, is he good at rendering actual facial characteristics and uh, skin tones kind of pink, kind of European looking. Um, and then uh, I think this is the same person, one, one, the one on the right done by Bodmer and the one on the left by Point. Um, you know, another way to do some comparisons. And what about the materials he had? Um, some people question if he was painting on site, and I think there's good evidence that he was, and this is maybe the strongest, that this person he's painting is holding a palette, right? <laughs> and he does talk about getting vermilion at the fort. Um, and I don't know, maybe somebody here knows how many, if, how many other paints, other color paints were available at the fort. Um, because these aren't natural dyes, you know, I think he's buying paint from somewhere. And he's been there five years, so, so he needs to have his supply replenished, right? Um, and then what about artistic license? Um, you know, is the sky more pronounced the, the sunset, or did he, wait, is that the color he actually saw? Uh, look at the eagles in that tree, that pair of eagles. Anyway, the detail, really, when you think about how tiny it is, that's incredible, but, um, you know, is this embellished, or is this really what Fort Lewis looked like? And then, um, this is another, you know, he has children's games, and this is the only one I believe he actually did observe among uh, Grovant in the winter. Um, but doesn't it look like those kids are reaching right into open water and they don't have much on, yet everything's that frozen. And then you've got the uh, reclining woman figure back here. <laughs> I don't know what that one was about. An angel overlooking, you know, looking over these poor kids who are about by the open water. Uh, then there's a lot of interesting environmental history in this, in this record. Um, he, in late February, I think, observed what he called this celestial sky uh, uh, phenomenon that was um, quite pronounced with, with multiple moon image. And he asked the elders if they'd ever seen this before, and they said on rare occasion when it was extremely cold, and it was bitter cold. And um, there is there is record that that, that winter of 1846-47 that he's that during this time, at least west of the divide, is one of the worst worst on record. So uh, it, he experienced great cold. A big difference in the records between Point and Desmet. Point never complains. This guy is traveling with a hernia that is greatly painful, and he rode all the way from Cordelaine Mission to Fort Lewis over all these months. And he never, in his journals, mentions a single personal thing. Dismet, you'd never know he was traveling with anyone else. That, that man had a very significantly strong ego. This is all about what he sees and what he, and, and points almost invisibly, he talks third person, he always references the other people with him. I find that really fascinating as well. And then, how accurate are the landscapes? Can we find ourselves through his paintings? So, what do you think? for Hellgate Canyon mouth from the Missoula. Pretty good, huh? You'd know where you were even if I didn't say Devil's Gate on there. Um, how about this one? Where, we, where it's not identified, does anybody recognize you know, these square buttes in a landscape like this? Darn. 
Um, and then, you know, how his beliefs influence what he conveys. So here's another, it's a, a conjurer. Um, and clearly he thinks it's diabolical as well. Um, it reminds me of in the New Testament, Jesus has a competition with some conjurers about, you know, turning a stick into a snake and things like that. Did you have a question? No. Oh, okay. Um, so here's a close-up of a, medi or a medicine man. Um, and here's... Point or dismet, praying over him, and, and he's even got the, the Society of Jesus up in the painting, uh, the symbol. Um, so McClintock, in uh, 60 years later, has this photograph of a of a medicine man um, spraying patient with yellow paint. Well, the close up of that, you know, looks like a kind of similar scene. You know, maybe he really, even though he thinks it's diabolical. <laughs> In a way, he, he's recording, he seems to be recording this with some sincerity. But th this sums up his worldview. Here's the, the purpose of the mission, is to bring temperance and everything good to the heathens who, who are you know, suffering from <coughs> Satan's influence. So that's pretty straightforward. This is his own painting of, of the purpose of the mission. So this led to all of this thinking that started with the kid in the, in the Browning High School, um, to thinking about, instead of just telling the story, thinking about the roots of our perception and, and how much we have to think about that before we just accept what somebody writes. And that, um, and that the Blackfeet uh, oral tradition and, and current life has to be part of this storytelling. So we're working with three schools on Blackfeet Reservation. This is the Alternative High School. And uh, yeah, they have some wonderful artists among them and throughout the community. And our purpose, our goal is that these kids are going to be interviewing elders about this. I'm giving them the image with the text that goes with it. And then they're going to talk with elders about their memory of that particular, whether it's um, some sort of traditional activity, ceremony, um, leadership roles, um, and then they'll retell and repaint. And we hope to have an exhibit where the two will be compared as the outcome. Um, one really great advantage to this, to Wilderness Kingdom, is there are 12 pages of paintings done by a North Blackfoot. Um, so it, it actually gives a contemporary to point um, visual story you know from from an insider point of view so that's an incredible resource again this this particular story is so rich in in vantage points and there is one um, publication about this currently that was yours but he wrote it before that book came out the, the Buckley book so he's off track on some of this but it's a it's a good start and it's fascinating um, so with, with all of this and the project that we're doing in Browning and Hart Butte, um, it gives them a chance to look at the perceptions of, of each other, right? Here's the, one of the Siksika drawings of the fort guy on his horse with a pipe in his mouth and, the, uh, and Point's view of a, of a warrior getting on his horse. And then the similar subject matter, um, the stand-up bonnet is traditional black, but you wouldn't see other tribes wearing that straight up bonnet. 
Um, then here's Bodmer again on the right, and uh, this, what, uh, I think the same person, but um, the kids can do research on, on Big Lake and see what, what they can find out. And in terms of portraits, it's interesting that um, the Siksika portraits don't have faces. And also the shield is blank, you know, and what does that mean? Well, I would never know, but hope these kids can, can learn what they can and about what still exists within the culture to address that. And this is incredible. I wish I had time to tell you this longer story that goes with this, but um, he does a phenomenal job of describing this leader of the, who he calls the mad dogs, and currently the crazy, known now as crazy dogs, but and of the rattle that each of them is holding. And um, the current leader of the crazy dogs said, oh yeah, that actually, those details are true. And then he went on into to more. So that's very alive. And here's 1846, you know, this amazing rendering of, of that society. And then um, the Siksika paintings, this, you see that top knot that the pipe, the pipe holder, um, the same way the ones that, that point painted. Um, and then this, this is actually an, an illustration of, of getting the pipe. And so um, the, the kids are really interested in, in this particular um, painting and then points paintings. And so here, here's Bodmer with one of the pipe carriers and then the point and then Curtis. And the, one of the kids in the alternative high school came up to me after the presentation with, a, with that picture on the um, bull there, on the Curtis photograph. In, on his phone and he said, this is my great grandfather. I'm really interested in this. And he said, and the family story is that he kept his medicine tied up in that top knot. So, you know, that's something that, that Nicholas Point never found out. So this collaboration with the tribal community is, um, is so much richer than if I were just trying to do this out of the books, right? So just full circle back to the holy woman and um, the McClintock photograph of something you know, pretty similar to what Point painted, although she's got the bundle on the travel instead of the horse. Um, and then, uh, I, that's an Ocon I attended a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, all of, this, all of this is alive for them and not that long ago. I interviewed an elder from the Coeur d'Alene tribe who told me that his grandmother had been baptized by Nicholas Point. And he knew that grandmother. He died, she died when he was five. And that really changed my, my perspective, right? I always thought this was an old story. And here's a man who knew the grandmother who was baptized by the guy who painted that. So it's short history when you haven't left your home. When those roots are deep, these stories are very much alive. And so for historians to proceed without making sure that there's engagement of both perspectives, we're really short shrifting the future. Thank you. Thank you.